<laughs> okay, uh, let's get started. Without further ado, then, uh, Luke 22. Let me put this up here. I have like four alarms set on my phone, so <laughs> I do. I do ignore them all. <laughs> it gives me. It helps me like know like where my pacing is, you know. So. <laughs> Snooze. <laughs> Snooze. <laughs> okay, uh, Luke 22. This morning, uh, we only have a couple more chapters in Luke, uh, and then uh, and then we'll be moving on uh, from there. So uh, I'm excited about it. We've been able to finish uh, the Gospel of Luke this year. Uh, so, <laughs> right. <laughs> First Bible study I ever taught it was an apartment, Josh's apartment. Uh, when we were, I was 17, 18, yeah, and uh, it was like four hours long. It was the beginning of Matthew, and we didn't even start the text. Like, <laughs> wow. Anyways, <clears throat> all right, Luke 22, let's read the chapter, guys, so that we get our uh, bearings and give precedence to the writing, and then we'll, um, uh, we'll kind of walk through it together. <clears throat> All right, Luke 22, beginning in verse 1. Now, <clears throat> now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas. Then Satan, <laughs> then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them, betray him to them. Sorry, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, or look, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there. Make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And uh, when, when the hour had come, verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which, which of them it was who would do this thing. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. <laughs> These disciples, y'all. <laughs> and, and, they are. and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves... For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not the one who sits, is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. 
but you are those who have continued with me in, the, in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you'll deny me, deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And as he, was, as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out? as against a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them, and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this, this man was, was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then, after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I, I don't know what you're saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny, deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemy blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, if you are the Messiah, right, that's Christ, if you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you'll by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you'll by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are, are you then 
the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it from his own mouth. Let's pray, guys. Father, as always, as always, it is you that we need. As we are getting um, toward the end of Luke's gospel, Luke's writing here, Lord, what I, I want, Lord, we, we want to hear your voice. We want to know that in the midst of our own suffering that we are not alone. That you're present. And that you're powerful. And that somehow even in the midst of a world that is really, really full of sorrow and suffering, you give beauty for ashes, Lord. You've promised resurrection. And as we look at Luke 22, I think it's so vital, so imperative that we set our eyes on that reality. That Jesus has promised to come again. That you will change our lowly mortal bodies and clothe us with immortality. Oh, that we might know you and your only Son whom you have sent, for this is eternal life. (laughs) Lord, would you do the things that you want to do in our hearts this morning, I pray, as we we, um, take some time, as we consider your word. Would you please do it, because we can't do it ourselves. God, you must do it. And so I ask that you would, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys, let's back up to the beginning of Luke 22 here. Now, verse 1, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. Uh, I mentioned to you before this idea, there are three feasts in Israel, three of them that, that, uh, three of them that required or, or you were supposed to, if you were a male, you were supposed to travel to Jerusalem to where the temple was in order to celebrate them. Passover was one of them. Passover actually is, uh, was three separate festivals or ideas joined together. They were the, the Passover itself, the Passover sacrifice, which is rooted in that story in Exodus uh, and uh, God bringing um, the nation of Israel out of Egypt and uh, that last plague, right? The 10th plague, that death angel that uh, went throughout Egypt, killing all of the firstborn, both of man and beast and God asking them, uh, asking them to sacrifice or commanding them to sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the doorposts and then the death angel would pass over all the houses with the blood on the doorposts. Of the house. Uh, so this is that festival. It was one of the three required festivals where men were supposed to, if they were able, to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. It had been um, celebrated for a long time, but as I mentioned, it was really three separate ideas all coupled together. It was Passover, that first day, and then a couple days later was the Feast of First Fruits, which is, interestingly enough, coincides with the resurrection. Jesus is called the First Fruits of the Resurrection because the resurrection happened in the Feast of First Fruits. Anyways, uh, I, I love how all of this works. Anyway, so, and, and then the, uh, coupled together with it started a week-long festival called Unleavened Bread. So sometimes uh, what would happen was uh, they would refer to this entire ceremony, this entire time period, this week-long thing in Jerusalem as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, sort of as a, a way to wrap all of these three things together. Okay, Paul uses the idea of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, commanding us, telling us as followers of Jesus that we ought to keep the feast of unleavened bread, and that is flee from sin, right? Because leaven is an illustration of sin. And in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you would go through your house, you would get all of the leaven, that's yeast, you'd get all of the yeast and get out of your house, right? So uh, that would happen, and uh, Paul says, encourages the believers to keep the feast of unleavened bread, that is flee from sin, right? (laughs) Get the leaven out of your life, (laughs) get the yeast out of your life, right? Don't embrace a sin as you follow Jesus, but rather turn away from it. So these three festivals happen all at the same time. Um, Passover, first fruits, and unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was an entire week-long thing. So uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called 
Passover. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably in some of the writings in the New Testament. So I just want you to be aware of it as you read. Uh, Verse 2, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Do you get the tension Luke's giving us? They wanted to kill him, but they were afraid of the crowds of people. Every day Jesus was going into the temple, and he was teaching, and he was leaving at night and going back to the Mount of Olives. On the other side of the Mount of Olives were Bethany and Bethphage. That's the cities of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, right? So um, he would go back to the Mount of Olives every night, and he would come back during the day. This is the last week here before Passover begins. And uh, he would go back to the temple. But because there were crowds of people, because this was a required festival for the men in Israel, there were many, many people gathering in Israel, the leaders were afraid of people. And the fear of man is always a snare. It will always catch you. (laughs) If the decisions that we make are motivated by being afraid of how others will respond rather than uh, a healthy fear of God, right? That's a dangerous place to be. And that's where they were, right? They were motivated more by the fear of man than by a true and right reverence and fear of God. And so they, even in wanting to catch Jesus, they were afraid to do it when he was in the temple every single day during this week. He was in the temple teaching and they were like, you know, we don't want to do anything then because there's like crowds of people and it's a bad deal. So they were trying to find a way to arrest him away from the crowds. And something happens. I, I, don't, I mean, you read it. We read it. Verse 3, then Satan entered Judas. That's troubling. <laughs> Judas is one of the twelve. The disciples or whoever apparently thought he was trustworthy enough to leave him with the purse. He was the one, he was the treasurer of the group. He was also skimming money off the top. We find that out in, in some of the other gospel writings. Right. Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot. He's called Judas Iscariot, which um, probably means, don't know for sure, but probably means he's from the city of Cariot, which uh, we don't know exactly where that is anymore. There are a couple places that are similar. Kerioth, I think, is the name of a couple of different towns. Maybe he was from one of those, but it's irrelevant. The reason why he's called Judas Iscariot, his um, surname is given frequently, is to separate him from other Judases, right? Because there were other people named Judas. If you were in the first century being named Judas, which is the Hebrew word for praise, Judah, sometimes we shorten it to Jude. Those are all the same name. It's the Hebrew word for praise, um, <laughs> it was a very common name. So like after this event, I imagine people in the church are like, don't name your kids Judas. <laughs> right? like, don't name your kid Judah anymore. You know? um, but um, it was to separate him in the, in the, certainly among the early believers. So they would know exactly what Judas was being referred to because there, uh, there was another disciple who also was called Judas as well. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, remember, because they were trying to find some way to arrest Jesus. And now Satan is like, oh, I can do this. <laughs> and he enters Judas. And, and then uh, Judas goes to the chief priests and captains. They were looking for a way um, to arrest him. And uh, verse 5 says this, and they were glad. They agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. And of course, this idea of uh, Jesus um, being sold in that sense is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. One of the prophecies there, like Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 11, excuse me, talks about some of that. So he promised and he sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. I want you to just sit with that for a second. Judas is, he's one of the 12, right? So Jesus had, there were a larger group of disciples, a broader group of disciples. He had called 12 and gave them very particular power earlier on in his ministry to go out in different cities and to do certain things. Um, They were sort of the inner circle of this broader group of followers, of disciples, of this itinerant traveling rabbi, Jesus. Um. I just, 
later on we're going to read like Jesus is saying, the Son of Man had to be betrayed, but woe to that man by whom it is done. In the end, when I think about Judas, I often think like, you know, God has, God knows the beginning from the end. He knows what's going to happen. And there are certain things that are ordained in that sense, right? And so um, when I think about the story of Judas, I always think, okay, if this has to happen, if Jesus has to be betrayed, just don't let it be you, <laughs> right? Like, like you guard your heart. You pursue God with sincerity, right? <clears throat> he promised and he sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitudes. They were afraid of the crowds. And so now uh, Judas gives them the opportunity to um, arrest Jesus away from the crowds because Judas, as one of the inner 12, knows where Jesus is going to be on the Mount of Olives because he's going back to the Mount of Olives every night, right? So he knows exactly where to go to find uh, Jesus and to betray him. Then came verse eight, or verse seven, sorry. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed, certainly referring to the particular sacrifice. The word killed there actually is the word for sacrifice. And the Passover must be sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it, that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? It's a very normal, everyday sort of question, right? Sometimes I think we, um, some people, uh, I certainly have done this as well. There have been times when I have been afraid to ask the Lord about very simple, practical, everyday things. I don't think I need to. I think it's okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> they just said, where do you want us to prepare? He said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Really quickly, a summary of this idea. Um, it wouldn't have been strange. Sometimes I think... For years I read this. I grew up in the church. For years I read this. And I was like, it seems like such a weird thing to be like, they didn't know where to have the Passover. So Jesus said, just go into the city and there's going to be a guy carrying water and ask him, you know, where the master is, uh, whatever, and, and go prepare, you know, in the upper room, whatever. It seemed like such a strange thing. But I want you to remember some of that cultural setting, that context. This was the normal time every single year when most of Israel traveled to Jerusalem. They didn't have like... Um, uh, you know, like Holiday Inn everywhere around the corner. So frequently people opened their homes up in the city. This would have been a very normal everyday thing. So they see this guy walking by. Jesus uh, knows exactly what's going to happen. And they say, when we use the phrase the teacher, I want to remind you that that's the idea of a Jewish rabbi. It's the word for a teacher, right? So when Jesus says, go to them and say, the rabbi, you know, wants to use your place, this would have been a totally normal thing in the context of the time totally, absolutely normal. And the master of the house would be like, sure, man, bring your rabbi and your disciples. Let's go. This is a totally normal thing. This is Passover. We're going to celebrate this together. But the thing I want to point out to you as at least some kind of application for us from this is that Jesus knew and he told them and it was exactly the way Jesus said it was going to be. And at the very bottom, I find comfort in that because it reminds me that I can trust whatever Jesus says. <laughs> If he says something, I, I can trust him. I can believe him, even when it's hard. Well, the text continues. Luke continues now as they're getting ready for this final dinner before Jesus is betrayed and arrested. When the hour had come, verse 14, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There is in these statements a, uh, a, a statement of finality. Jesus is saying something is about to happen that's going to change things. Jesus had been warning his disciples uh, several times over the past several months, even probably the past several years or year or so, that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be crucified, and that he was going to rise from the dead. Every time he said that, it's like it went completely over the disciples' heads. 
They couldn't wrap their minds around it. Much of the Jewish concept of the Messiah was that he was going to come and overthrow the Roman oppressors and sort of set Israel up as the the kingdom of David, right? That was the, the way that they were viewing everything that was going to happen. But things didn't happen the way that they expected. And I think this, among other things, is one of the reasons why some of the Jews are very discouraged <laughs> um, in the coming of Jesus. So in the first coming of Jesus, he didn't do what they thought he was going to do. And the same thing happens today. Sometimes, and this is sometimes the fault of our church, sometimes the fault of, of Christians or just poor teaching. Sometimes we make promises to people and we say, if you do this or if you follow God or if, if whatever, then this thing's going to happen for you. But they're promises that God never made. <laughs> and so we end up sometimes setting people up for, for disillusionment, for being discouraged by giving false promises. That was something that the false prophets did in Israel. And God warned them over and over and over again, don't say this. Don't, you're, you're prophesying of your own heart. I didn't tell you to say that. But it still happens a lot. And then when the thing is that thing doesn't happen, that sometimes people were promised if they go to church or if they give a certain amount of money or if they do whatever, whatever the step is, people are told they have to fulfill in order to gain something they want, which is, by the way, using God like a vending machine is always a bad idea. <laughs> if I put my quarter in or my dollar in, oh, I prayed today. Here's my dollar, God. Give me what I want now. Give me, give me, give me. Right? When we use God like a vending machine, we obliterate the concept of the right relationship that God would have with us as his children, and he is our, as our good father. He wants you. <laughs> but I think it's also wise and important for us to remember that, that our lives are about God. We exist for him. He does not exist for us. This is leveled sometimes as a criticism against Christians or, or sometimes even religion itself, the sense or the idea that um, God is a made-up character simply uh, to fulfill something that we want, right? We made God up in our mind, or maybe some would say the stories here. They were made up in order to fashion God in our image, to, uh, to make ourselves happier. That sometimes, I think, is the way many people live. They live as if God exists for them rather than the, the uh, transverse of that being true. You exist for God. That's a very different concept. <laughs> you exist for him, okay? <clears throat> so when the hour had come, he sat down, 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, as we read, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I'll no longer eat of it till it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, then he took the cup gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. This is where Jesus, at this last supper, after supper is over, he begins this tradition that the church has repeated time after time after time after time, time after time. This thing that sometimes is called um, communion, sometimes depending on what tradition you grew up in, it may be called the Lord's table. It could be called Eucharist, which is a word that means thanksgiving, <clears throat> where he takes after Passover, they eat the traditional Passover meal, he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to them. He takes the wine, and um, he says the bread is his body, the wine is his blood, the new covenant in my blood, as we read there, which is shed for you. I'm going to come back to this at the end of our time today. So um, this is very brief. I just want you to be aware this is where it starts. But we're going to come back to this at the end of our uh, time today. I was going to have the communion uh, things for us this morning, uh, but I checked the ones that we had Remember, I ordered the little like pre-made cup things like for COVID safety or whatever. And like the wine has like the, the wine. It was grape juice. It has like dregs in it now. So very well, maybe wine <laughs> at this point. So I'm not sure we should be <laughs> drinking that. So uh, I'll get some some things and we'll we'll uh, celebrate the Lord's table uh, next week <laughs> uh, together. We'll, we'll have the um, uh, take the, the bread and the. Uh, eat the bread and drink the, the cup. 
uh, then, but uh, anyways. Um, <clears throat> let's move on, because I want to come back to that, to that uh, thing. But behold, verse 21, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Do you see that those two concepts there that I mentioned earlier? He's like, this is the thing that has been prophesied is going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed, it, as, is, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom it happens. Like, this is going to happen. Just don't let it be you. <laughs> like, like, you examine your heart. Like, some people are going to turn away from following Jesus. It's something we find over and over and over again repeated, not only in the prophecies of the Old Testament, reality of the remnant of God, but, but in the New Testament writings of the apostles. We find this idea that, that there are many people who will turn away from the Lord, but just you examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You, you check your heart. You, you, you see for yourself. You pursue the Lord with sincerity rather than clinging on to, uh, to traditions that, that aren't the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. Truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they begin to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. They thought Judas was so trustworthy that nobody accused him. Right? Like this is, he deceived them. Jesus knew. In John, when we get to when we see in John's gospel, we'll find that um, that that Jesus tells John who it is, but everybody else doesn't know. John is the one leaning on Jesus' chest at at dinner time here at the supper. He's he's very close to him, and John asks, and so Jesus tells him who it is. But then Judas gets up and he leaves dinner, and everybody else thinks he's just going to you know get something else ready for Passover or whatever. They don't understand. <clears throat> Uh, but John John did because Jesus told him exactly who it was. They began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. This is the normal thing. Like, and and we find the other gospel writers. They were like, "Is it I? Am I the one?" They were. They turned to internal first. Am I the one who's going to do it? And then I love that Luke records this right after them wondering who's going to betray Jesus. They're wondering who's going to betray him. And then Luke records this. Now, there was also a dispute. They were also arguing about something because they're people. <laughs> and they argue. <laughs> so there's a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And I love it. I just love this so much. Which of them should be considered the greatest? And I get that like they're like, which of them under Jesus should be the greatest? But just it's always been fascinating to me because like, the greatest one in the kingdom is the one sitting right there in front of them. <laughs> like it's Jesus, right? And they're like, which one of us should be the greatest? And I know, right? They're talking about themselves, not about Jesus. They're like which one of us of the 12 is going to be the greatest, right? They're so much like us. They're so proud. There's, there's further details about some of these things uh, in the other gospel writings. That's why I'm glad that we have them. They give us some of the other details here, but but we're we're set in in, in looking at Luke's writing for right now, so we'll stick with this. Um, he said, verse twenty five, when they were disputing among them as to which of them should be the greatest, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. There have been a lot of cases of and situations uh, recently, but not just recently. I think probably always been true of um, very severe types of spiritual abuse of church leaders and others um, who have done this very thing that Jesus said shouldn't happen. And... I think if we get through our into our minds the idea that that being great in God's kingdom isn't about having a position of authority but greatness is service that's what it means to be great 
Jesus paints that illustration for us. He, he reveals that to us about his kingdom. It isn't about how many people obey your commands. That's the way the world views um, successfulness in our corporate atmospheres. And unfortunately, we, unfortunately we, have, we have usurped that idea into the church. That the greater number of people I command means the more authority I have. But that has nothing to do with the fellowship of Christians in the church of Jesus, who are all equals. Not so among you. And it's, this is a very dangerous thing. I, I remember it, we had this thing happen in Brunswick. There was this guy who came and he started calling himself an elder. I mean, he, it just was weird. And he had like this Bible study at his house. He was also unemployed and then like had all these teenagers that would move in with him and his wife. And like the teenagers would pay for everything because they all had jobs. And like it was just weird, right? And I found out about, about a, a lot of this stuff afterward. And then I found out later that he was calling himself an elder to other people in our church. I had never recognized him. Nobody else had ever really recognized him as that in our church. And then um, and then he was asking for people for money for, for himself. <laughs> he was going around asking them to give money to him, and he would talk about these great things that he was going to do and all of this stuff. And I didn't find out until years later that, that this was happening. He and his family moved away, and, and uh, there were other issues that I had confronted him on. And it was, um, and then, and then it got much worse from that. I won't go into the details, but some of the details of what was happening were much, much worse than that. Um, uh, be be careful of this. It is not my place or any elder, pastor, um, bishop, overseer, whatever we want to call that. A role of authority in the church of Jesus. It is not my place or anyone else's to lord anything over you. I am a fellow worker for your joy. That is the place. You have to hold me accountable as I do you. Like that's that's the way this thing works. We're a family together. <laughs> Kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. Right? I love these phrases because I think they, they give uh, teeth to this idea. They give meat to it. They exercise authority. And if that's the way that I view ministry or serving in the church, then my view of what it means to follow Jesus as a leader in his church is wrong. It is not about exercising your authority over others. Not so among you, he says. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. <laughs> How many of you guys grew up with siblings? <laughs> I was a younger sibling. My brother didn't care anything about when I thought about anything. <laughs> I, didn't, I couldn't exercise authority over him. Let him be as the younger. This is the way Jesus says your attitude should be as a follower of Jesus in the church, particularly if you're in leadership. <laughs> Let him be as the younger. <clears throat> and he who governs as he who serves, instead of viewing the church of Jesus as a um, maybe a person or a pyramid going down from the top with authority exercised on the top and the authority coming down to everyone else from there. I like to flip that upside down and to view it like an upside down triangle <laughs> and saying that the leadership is really under everyone else saying, how can we serve you? What can we do to be a benefit to all of the other people who are over us, right? We are to esteem others better than ourselves. That's what Paul writes to us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourself. That's the way of Jesus' kingdom. And it is very sad that it's not really the way of sometimes of the church. But um, my prayer is that God would, would change us, would change me, because it's easy for it to, to, to flip-flop.
the wrong way, not the way of the kingdom. He who governs should be as he who serves. Verse 27, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? And then uh, when you read this, you're like, where's he going with this? <laughs> right? Which, which person is greater, right? The person who is sitting at the table being served or the person who's serving? Which one is greater? Right? Typically, you would think uh, it's the person who is sitting at the table being served by someone else, right? That's the person who's greater. Yet, I am among you as the one who serves, Jesus said. He wasn't just sitting at the table saying, do all this for me. By the way, he's still not. If you follow Jesus, (laughs) he's still serving you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He ever lives to make intercession for all those who are being saved. Yet I am among you as the one who serves. This is the attitude with which we ought to be in fellowship with one another. And if we have this kind of gracious, humble, servant-hearted attitude, I think it would rescue us and rescue our fellowship together from a lot of problems (laughs) where we're thinking, well, somebody should do for me. And I don't like that place because they're not doing for me what I want done. Well, fine, go there and do something for them. (laughs) stop making about everybody trying to do what you want and you serve. Put yourself under. Say, if this is the way I want things to be, what can I do to help? But sadly, we have oftentimes a very consumer type of mentality about the church where we say, I'm going to this place or gathering with these people because of what I get from them. Instead of thinking, I'm going to go and say, what can I do to serve? How can I help? How can I be under? How can I be as the younger? How can I be as the one who serves, as Jesus uh, shows us to be? But you are those who have committed, who have continued with me, verse 28 continues, who've continued with me in my trials. We better finish up here. (laughs) And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus gives very particular promises to these um, disciples. You might be saying, well, what about Judas (laughs) sitting on 12 thrones, right? Judging 12 tribes. (laughs) Don't worry, he gets replaced. Luke tells us about that in Luke part two. We call that the book of Acts. Luke part two, right? (laughs) Part two. Uh, That's the book of Acts. Uh, He tells us that uh, after Judas hangs himself and his entrails burst out. uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. (laughs) Just sometimes people don't realize things that are in the Bible. And it's funny. Anyways. And people are like, we should just let our kids read the Bible. It's so much nicer than those bad TV shows. I'm like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> like, there's some pretty gruesome stuff in there. Anyways, um, <laughs> sitting, on 12 thrones, sitting on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, Judas ends up being replaced with another one of the disciples named Matthias. Um, so continuing in verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I just want you to consider this really quickly. Jesus prayed for him and he still failed. He still disobeyed. This radically, this idea of what happens with Peter here, for me, really changed the way that I view my failure, my sin as a follower of Jesus. I realized it didn't shock him. And that I could always come back to him and say, Lord, I I really messed up. See, his prayer here, he says, I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. Peter's going to fail. But he still wants him to trust him. He still wants him to trust Jesus. That's what it means to have faith. It means to trust him. And Peter does. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your Brethren, indeed, Peter becomes one of the leaders in the early church, even after this colossal failure. I mean, what do you call it? Peter's like, I don't even know that guy. (laughs) Repeatedly, he says this, you know, and he says it right after he's about to tell them, even if I have to be arrested with you, even if I have to die, I'll never do that. (laughs) Right? And he does it more than once. (sighs) 
good reminder that our sin doesn't shock the Lord. So when you sin, return to him. Trust him. Ask him to forgive you and to change you. And as you grow through those things, use the wisdom and the grace that God gives you to do the very thing Peter was instructed to do, strengthen the brethren. Serve others. But he said to him, verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Love Peter. (laughs) I'll go to prison with you. I'll die with you. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Not yet, at least. Some of the traditions of early church history suggest to us that Peter, in fact, did this very thing. Both went to prison and died. A horrible death for Jesus. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me, not just once, but three times. If I was Peter, my heart would just sink. Like This is the Lord telling you, you're going to do this. Oh, and not just one time, but three times. Peter's like, no, 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 I'm going to. Peter had this habit of telling Jesus no sometimes. You know, like when Jesus said, I'll be betrayed and crucified, Peter's like, far be it from you, Lord. And, and then Jesus' response to Peter is what? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you'll deny three times that you know me. He said to them, when I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. This is referring earlier on. Jesus sent the 12 out very specifically with a very special authority. And he told them, don't take extra stuff with you. Whatever city, whatever house you go into, stay there and let your peace rest on it. If there's no person of peace there, then take your peace from it and move on to a different place. You know, And this is part of their mission earlier on. But what it was teaching them was that they could depend on Jesus. He said the worker is worthy of his wages, right? So they could depend on God to provide for them as they were doing the work that God had called them to. And that same lesson is something that you can believe as well. <laughs> you can trust the Lord to provide the things that you need to do what he wants you to do. when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, (laughs) let him take it and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Really quickly, repeatedly Jesus does this thing where he says, I know this is going to happen because it was written. And he refers back to some prophecy in the Old Testament. I just can't stress to you how important it is for you to be learning and spending time in the scriptures, (laughs) in the writings. This is, by the way, this is from Isaiah 53. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus knows this is going to happen. And so his instructions to them are very practical. If you have something, go sell it and grab a sword. (laughs) Because this has to happen. This prophecy. He was numbered with the transgressors. (laughs) For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. Maybe they were just sitting there in the room where they were. I don't know. Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. (laughs) They only need one, right? Because Peter's going to be like, whack, and hack off the servant uh, of the high priest's ear. It's enough. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. That's part of this whole plot that's being played out. This was the normal thing that happened regularly during this time period. During this whole week, he was in the city teaching. He would go out to the Mount of Olives afterward. So this sets up where Judas is now able to betray him by going first, gathering the people he was gathering, and then meeting them at the place that Jesus was regularly going to. Okay, so it's setting up that situation. He went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is wild. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. But like, Jesus is the one that's about to go through something here. But he talks to his disciples, just pray that you 
pray that you don't enter into temptation. He was, he was withdrawn from them, verse 41 says, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. So he went a little bit further, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I have heard, it made me want to smack them, some of the TV preacher dudes say things like, if you pray like this, like if you ask God for something and you say, if it is your will, let it happen, but not what I want, what you want, then you're only praying that way because you lack faith. It makes you want to just knock them out, man. Like, What are you talking about? <laughs> Literally the way Jesus prayed in the garden. It was, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass for me. But I want what you want. And it's in this place that we find this reality of Jesus' submission to the Father. It's a vital part of this thing that we call the Trinity. The Son is fully submitted to the Father. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think that is the wisest prayer that you could ever pray for your own life. God, here is this thing that I think. Here's this thing that I want. Here's what I'm seeing if it's possible, let this happen, but not my will. Let your will be done in me. Not just Don't let it just be what I want, Father. Because in doing this, we find in our hearts when we pray that way, a submission to the will of God. We recognize his authority, his power to change our situations. And we also recognize that he is the Lord and not us. And that really is where the central issue is. When we treat God like a vending machine or when we do like the people I was talking about, I saw on TV, were like, you just tell God what you want, and if your faith's strong enough, he'll give it to you. Like, I don't even know, like, what I should eat tomorrow. Like, (laughs) I'm dumb, (laughs) y'all. I think I know what I need, but there's so many things I just don't know. So it makes so much more sense to me to say, Lord, you know everything. This is what I think. This is what I want, but I'm going to submit to you. And when I pray like that, I find that when the thing happens, I'm able to say, God, I asked you to do what was your will, and so this is what happened. I can accept this then from you. And this becomes for me, frankly, a very helpful coping mechanism when things don't go the way that I thought. (laughs) Because I can say, God, I asked you, and this is what you allowed to happen. Then, verse 43 says, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he, I mean, how do you, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. By the way, that's the same thing that happened after the earlier temptation of Jesus in the desert with Satan. It says, after he was tempted, then angels came and they strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Some have described this as a sort of medical condition called hematidrosis, where uh, the capillaries in your skin begin to burst because of intense um, stress. And so there's sort of blood mingled with your sweat. I don't know. I just know the text says that uh, his sweat became like great drops of blood uh, falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping, and I think that's interesting, sleeping from sorrow. They were just sad. I know what that's like. Just be really just in grief and just wanting to sleep. (laughs) They're sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. It's like, guys, guys, pray. (laughs) And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Remember, he told them to make sure they had a sword. And they said, here's two of them. And he's like, that's that's plenty. So now they ask him, do you want us to um, strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. That was Peter, by the way. We find that out because Peter's always doing stuff without asking. <laughs> like, <laughs> some of them asked. But Peter's like, you shall not take the Lord. <laughs> you know, and and, and uh, cuts off. The <laughs> I don't know why that's my impression of Peter. Uh, 
too much Monty Python, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Uh, I don't know if Jesus is saying that to the disciples or if he's saying that to the um, high priest servant, like, hey, let me let me do this, you know, heal your ear. I, I don't I don't know. Um, some of the I mean, they're pronouns so hard to know exactly. But anyways, he, he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. It's like he wants them to know. (laughs) There's something else working. There's something else at play here. And I think it's really vital for you and I to remember that happening too. Like Paul reminds us that we don't fight against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities in, in the heavenly places. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. We think that we're f- one group of people just fighting another group of people and their ideas, but it's bigger than that. There are weightier matters and things happening in a spiritual realm that you and I, you and I fail to see frequently. <clears throat> this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now this is at night. Okay, this is nighttime. Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and I imagine it just crushed him. (laughs) Right? Peter had just told the Lord, just right there at, at, at the end of dinner, if I have to go to prison, if I have to die with you, I'll do it. Now he's denying that he even knows him. And the Lord looks at him. Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to, them, said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. I do want you to, to recognize there's a difference between what Peter does and what Judas does. Both of them failed miserably, right? <laughs> Certainly, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Judas' response becomes different. Now, the men who held Jesus, let's finish up real quickly, because I I wanted to give you some summary ideas. The men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Do you get the game they're playing? They cover his eyes up, and then they slap him because he's supposed to be the, the prophet or the Messiah or, or the teacher, the rabbi, right? And so they're making fun of that claim by blindfolding him and then randomly slapping him or hitting him in the face and then saying, Tell us who hit you, right? It's, they're, they're, it's a game they're playing. And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. I said it first time, that time. (laughs) Blasphemously (laughs) spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Messiah, the Christ, tell us. I want to make sure that's clear. I've told you guys this many times. The uh, word Christ comes from the Greek writing of the New Testament. Um, it's the word Christos. It uh, means the anointed one. Okay. So if we were to use that same word in Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. Okay. So those are the same word, just different languages, rooted in different languages. Christ comes from the Greek language, whereas Messiah comes to us from Hebrew. But they are the same word and the same idea. Okay. So he is Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Okay. So they ask him plainly, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you'll by no means believe me. He, he knows their game. He's like, you're not going to. This isn't changing. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. If I challenge you, if I ask you something, you're not going to let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. 
now he uses this as sort of a third third person thing. The son of man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you then the son of God? They ask him very directly. I want you to hear the definite article. Are you then the son of God? They are asking him a very particular thing because saying this means he's equating himself with God. And they recognize this, and it makes them so mad when, when they hear his answer. Right? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his, mouth, from his own mouth. They had tried to find people to come and lie about Jesus. They tried to find several false witnesses because the law of Moses said in order for you to execute somebody, you had to have, it had to be done at the mouth of two or three witnesses to an event. So if he was a blasphemer, they had to have two or three people who agreed on what his blasphemy was, who heard him blaspheme, and they would come before the court. And they tried to find people to lie, but they, even then they couldn't find it, people to agree. So then as they keep questioning him, then they think he's convicting himself, essentially, here. Um, and in their minds, he is. Because calling himself the son of God is putting himself in a position that they recognize as, as sacred. And they said, we don't need any more witnesses because we are all the witnesses now. That's the idea. We don't need to call any witnesses because we have now witnessed his blasphemy. He's claiming to be the son of God. That's blasphemy. Now they feel like they are justified in putting him to death according to, uh, according to Moses. All right, I want to wrap up with these two ideas. Three, these seven ideas. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I won't do that to you. I had several other places I wanted to read. It's, I know it's 71 verses, so it's right. That's like less than um, less than a minute for each one, right? For us to do an hour. But um, I want you to read these on your own. I want you to to dig deeper into this. These ideas. Uh, the first one is in Isaiah, um, or in Jeremiah 31. Sorry, not Isaiah. Jeremiah 31 where God, through the prophet Jeremiah, promises a new covenant or a new agreement that he was going to make with the nation of Israel that was not going to be like the covenant he made with them at Mount Sinai, the covenant that they broke, uh, Jeremiah says, or the Lord says through Jeremiah. Okay, So he gives them the promise of a new covenant. So then when Jesus, after supper, holds the cup up and he says what? This is my blood of what? The new covenant. He's referring to something very particular, very specific, that these Jewish uh, people hopefully would have been familiar with the writings of, of Jeremiah. Okay. The prophet Jeremiah, this new covenant, Jesus is saying, I'm bringing it in here. There are two main traditions that have been passed down throughout church history that we continue to practice as followers of Jesus. There are, there are several others that we could address, but two uh, main um, traditions that we continually practice. Most of the church, almost anywhere in almost any denomination or any group or any variation practice, at least these two things the Lord's table or communion or Eucharist, however we call it, okay, that one, and water baptism, okay? Whether you, whether you think, you know, submersion, sub, submersion or uh, sprinkling, whatever, still water baptism, okay? These two things. I want you to see something that I recently noticed that I think is fascinating. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Read it later. First Corinthians 15, the very beginning of it, Paul says, this is the gospel message that I preach to you by which you are saved if you hold fast to it. That Jesus, that the Messiah died for our sins, was buried and raised from the dead. He lists those three things, okay? Died for our sins, buried, raised from the dead. That's the good news. If you hold to it, by which you are saved, Paul says. This is the very foundational bottom of his message, right? This is it. Right? It's interesting to me that these two traditions that have been passed on are literally to illustrate those three points. We take the bread and the cup and we remember his death. We proclaim his death until he comes. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. As we take the bread and the wine, we proclaim his death until he comes because we're, we're celebrating his broken body and his blood shed for us, the blood of the new covenant that washes away all of our sin, right? It's all about what he has done for us, not our ability to obey or our ability to keep anything up. It's about what God has done for us and him calling us to him, just trusting him, right? So that's the first part of it. The second part of it illustrates the other parts of Paul's message. Water baptism is about what? And Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. Again, read more for further, <laughs> further study. Paul talks about this. 
we're buried with him in baptism. And then when we come up out of the water, it's like we're raised in new life. We're joined together with Jesus in water baptism in a very particular way. And so when we do those things, when we come to the Lord's table, when we celebrate water baptism, we're literally proclaiming the gospel message that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 was the whole gospel. He died for our sins, was buried and raised from the dead. And I think this is so cool (laughs) that these two things, and that they're still practiced by every single part of the church. (laughs) It's fascinating and beautiful and just glorious to me. We proclaim his death at the Lord's table, and then we celebrate his burial and resurrection from the dead as a reminder that we too are raised with him. Okay, in uh, in water baptism. And like water baptism, I think submersion is such a wonderful picture because if I hold you under the water too long, you're going to die. Like it's this great picture of death. And then, and then I can pull you out of the water. It's just an illustration. Like if I hold you too long. Um, <laughs> don't struggle. Don't struggle. Sorry. <laughs> and <laughs> I've ruined it now. <laughs> and then I pull you out of the water. And you're raised, <laughs> and you're raised in, in newness of life, right? We're, we're joined together with him in death and raised in, in new life. <laughs> I've totally ruined it now. So um, thank you guys for your patience. I think those things are wonderful. I wanted to share them with you. I commend to 1 Corinthians 15, Jeremiah 31, uh, Romans chapter 6 for a little bit further study on some of those ideas. Please read through those sections and dig into them a little bit more on your own as we continue our trek through the, the writings together. So um, let's pray. Father, we are really, really thankful for you. I am Father, I am nothing, and you are all, and I praise you for it, because you are so good to me, and I don't deserve it. You are good to us, and we haven't earned it, Lord. Would you, would you please, my Father, would you continue blessing these, your people? Would you, would you lead us in your way? Would you comfort us when we fail? Would you make our lives valuable and about the work of your kingdom? The days are short, Lord, whatever that looks like for us. Father, have your way in our lives as we pray just as Jesus did. Nevertheless, not what we want, but your will be done. In me, in my body, with my spouse, in my children, in my job, with fellowship of believers, with our, with our country, Lord. Let your will be done and teach us to be faithful to you and to love our neighbors in the midst of whatever happens. God, help. (laughs) Help. Pray that you would lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, gang. Uh, It's a little late. Thank you for your patience with me. I want the Lord to bless you and to protect you, to keep you. And I want the Lord to make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. And I want the Lord to lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, you guys. Love you. You're certainly dismissed. If anybody needs any prayer, grab your neighbor. They know how to pray for you just fine. So (laughs) ask them to pray for you. Or you can ask me, but it's no no better than anybody else. So (laughs) guys are dismissed.